This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. I could have backed off, <laughs> but that ain't racing. Gave it all I could. I didn't leave nothing laying on the table. Took it all with me to the racetrack. Lord, if you just get me back these 5,000 miles, I got to go and get me back home. I promise you one thing, I won't be back. Don't you ever forget, I'm a daddy too. Well, you should have seen that wreck from my side. That ride back from Darlington, from that day forward, I made it my life's commitment to do whatever I had to do to become a Wicked Cup rider. Oh, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, where, Steve, I gave up the chance to run in the rain this morning so I could come record with you today. <laughs> Big mistake. <laughs> you know, I am never, ever going to win a race on foot. Okay. Not going to happen. All right. I have placed in my age group a time or two, but it was only because there were only two or three people in my age right. group. So if nothing else, running in the rain is something that I can do that nobody else is willing to do. And running in the rain is awesome. But no, it's raining cats and dogs outside. But here I am recording this podcast with you today running in the rain i don't even like to drive in the rain oh well that's a completely different matter 
<laughs> I had a time getting down here this morning, but we are here. Steve, today we are going to be sharing the second and final installment of the interview with Dale Inman. It was such a great yeah. Great conversation that we had. And my respect for him grew just exponentially talking to him. Well, it was a great pleasure to do that. There was a time when uh, not only us, but I don't think many people at all could get to Dale and have that kind of interview. Uh, of course, he's changed over the years, become more mellow. And Dale's the kind of guy that if he knows you and likes you, well, the sky's the limit. He'll work with it every way he can. Well, he must like us because he did work with us. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> In our second segment, we're going to be going back to a 1978 issue of Grand National Scene where D.W. won a race at Richmond. Rough shot at Richmond. (laughs) But I thought it would be appropriate for two reasons. Number one, the cup circuit is going to be racing at Richmond. And number two... D.W. has been in the news a little bit lately. Yeah, absolutely. He's going to retire at the end of this season. He's going to move away from the Fox broadcast booth after 19 years. How about that? Now, he was in the broadcast booth almost as long as he drove. Absolutely, and he was stellar at both careers. There's no doubt about it. D.W. has had a great impact on the sport of NASCAR, not only on the track, but off the track. Now, I don't care what the critics say about D.W., okay? Oh, yeah. Open that door, why don't uh, you? <laughs> well, every single broadcaster has his critics. That's just the way it is. It doesn't make any difference what you think them. There'll be somebody out there that thinks something else. So it is with Daryl. But I still maintain his influence on Fox television was tremendous at just as much as his influence on the track. And I agree with you. I enjoy listening to DW in the booth, with the exception. I know, I know. With the exception <laughs> of one, maybe 10 second, I don't know what you call it, stumble or whatever. But hey, we won't even mention the words. <laughs> okay. Let's leave it at that. But even with that, you have to respect Daryl for his work. Oh, absolutely. Now, finally, on Patreon, Steve, we have new support from Will Riney and Chris Clark and Brad Harrison, and on PayPal, Chris Clark not only signed up for Patreon, he also sent us some love on PayPal. So, Chris, thank you, man. And thanks to all of you. One of the special things that we have been trying to do for our Patreon supporters is provide a little bit of exclusive content. Now, this week, it's not going to exactly be exclusive, but I do want to share a short clip on Patreon of an interview that I had that's going to be coming up next week, the first of two installments. You may not remember the name Lyndon Amick, but you will remember his story. Lyndon was a driver in the Bush series, and of course I got to know him during his time there. He left NASCAR to sign up for the National Guard, and Steve, he wound up doing a tour of duty in Afghanistan. To hear him tell of his experiences over there, was just absolutely one of the most intriguing interviews I've ever done. And that was just one part of his story. I've heard that part of his story, or most of it anyway. And I'll tell you what, it is powerful. It is intriguing. The listeners are really going to get an earful here. So here is a short clip of that segment that I'm going to be sharing on Patreon. And then next week, we will share the first part of the interview where Lyndon kind of talks about his career and his decision to join the National Guard. And then in the last segment that we will share in a couple of weeks, he will talk about his service on the ground in Afghanistan, which included combat. And also, Steve, it became very, very personal And he really shared some stuff that I didn't expect him to. So, yeah, people are going to want to listen to that. So here is this short, short clip. And at that moment, I mean, all hell starts breaking loose. Like we start, I started getting fire from literally 360. And I remember crouching down, looking up. And at this point, it's like a canopy of tracer rounds going overhead. RPGs are going off. I mean, it's just like, it's crazy. And I just remember capturing that moment in my head going, this is insane. Like this amount of, where are all these people at? That's what I was thinking. a long way from Talladega. Yeah, there's no <laughs> doubt. There's no doubt about it. Um, and so I'm just like thinking, where are all these people? Like yeah. that, to create this much fire. I mean, it was just, yeah. it looked like fireworks were going off, you know. 
And uh, so anyway, so that was a uh, Harry probably, it probably was five or 10 minutes, but it felt like it was an hour um, just because when you're exposed like that and you're taking fire, you return, all this stuff's going on. And we were filming all of it, uh, which is crazy. One particular moment, I was standing up returning fire. And in that moment, you know, I was concerned. I was heightened, but I wasn't like concerned I was going to die. Like two different moments. Like the moments where you're concerned you're going to die are different than the moments you're just concerned in general yeah. or you're heightened because yeah. of the combat situation. So I wasn't like concerned for my life. Well, we go back and watch the video and you can hear rounds ricocheting off the vehicle that I'm standing. Like literally we can, we can go back now and paint the picture of how there were rounds hitting all around me. And I'm completely unaware of it in the moment. Steve, I don't know how it can get much more powerful than that. I don't know either. But, you know, what that interview has done for me has increased my respect for Lyndon tremendously. And it has also increased my respect for the people who serve. Absolutely. And I actually have a first cousin, Matt, who just returned from Afghanistan. And he, (laughs) Steve, he's a career soldier. Uh-huh. And he is now, I believe, a major. So, hey, well, there's actually a Houston in charge somewhere, <laughs> man. <laughs> now, let that sit next to you for a second. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I assume he does a very good job. So, patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast, paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. Help us out if you can, because that's what allows us to bring this kind of story to you. You went ahead in 93, now you did go up with uh, Billy Hagan, and he had Terry Labonte at the time. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, how'd that happen? Well, um, Billy had been talking to me, too, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, High Point, the shops over here in High Point, that was a lot closer than Charlotte, you know, and uh, he uh, he kept talking, and yeah, I made the deal, and... Uh, Stacy was still trying to get me to stay, too, because he, he, he knew that I was leaving. And uh, of all things, the last race was at Riverside, and Terry all but killed himself out yeah, there. Yeah. And I never had met Terry because he was kind of a loner, too. But So we won the race with Tim, and I remember Tim said when Terry wrecked, you know, Terry was – he come by and he said, having to get an ambulance over there quick, said, this is bad, you know. Wow. Lord. Yes. And uh, first I went to Terry's house and seen him. He had <laughs> <laughs> His leg was broke. He was on a crutch. <laughs> <laughs> I can do a good job for you. <laughs> no, he didn't. we didn't talk yet. I said, Lord, I'm just wondering how he's going to get over this. And then, uh, you know, we got through the 83 season, you know. It, uh, I think it affected him some. You know, I, I wouldn't argue the point with him on it, but uh, I think after we went back to Riverside in the July race or yeah. the summer race, June yeah. or July, ever when it was, I think once he went out there and run again that he was okay. I think it mentally it fixed him some, and I wouldn't argue with the point with him over that. But And then we finished up pretty good. I think we beat Tim at Rockingham for a win, and we was tearing up left rear tires and, I was taking – wasn't hurting the fronts much, but I was taking them off and putting them on the rear the next stop. They put some heat in them, put some life in them. So we went up winning that race and uh, went on and got lucky in 84 and had a, had a lot of good people around us and won the, won the championship in 84, which was really big for Terry and it was big for me too, you know. Was working with Terry maybe a little bit closer to what it was like working with Richard in terms of personality and so forth? Uh, no, uh, Terry was pretty laid back. I mean, he and he still is. You know, he's oh yeah, he's, yeah. He, But he's he's great people. You know, see him at the Hall of Fame every year, and it's just great seeing him. And uh, you know, his dad worked with us, Bob, and then yeah. and and then of course uh, Bobby was trying to get started too. You know, with the in the I guess it was Grand National then, wasn't it? Yeah, you know what it was called yeah. or something. I don't know what it was called then, but. And Bobby worked there in the shop, you know, was cleaning up. But his dad, Bob, Lord, that's one of the hardest working men I've ever been around. <laughs> yeah. Terry just told me at the last Hall of Fame down there, I guess, that uh, 
<laughs> no disrespect to Bob, but he could make a sentence use never word cuss word and make sense. <laughs> but uh, now, did well, you work with Bob or did you work for Bob? <laughs> I, yeah, no, we got along okay. Yeah, and, uh, but you know, one thing about working people, if you want them to do something, talk to them and tell them what you want, and let them make them think it's their ideal. I, I was pretty good at that, you know. And but Bob was good, Lord, but he believed in his sons, you know, and. Golly, <laughs> it was a heck of a championship run. You know, we we uh, wound up, you know, Daryl and Dale and a bunch of them was in it. Finally eliminated them out, and we, was running, we had to run Harry again at the end of the season at Riverside on a road course where you got – and back then the stuff wasn't as bulletproof as, yeah. as some of it is today. And, you know, but, uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was big for – and, of course, what, Terry come up 12 years later and won it again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, – so I mean that's that's just another story, you know. But it's that's just what it was. Well, I think he took the lead in '84 with ten races to go. So what was your mindset over those last ten races? You just mentioned that uh, it was something of a scramble for a while. <laughs> yeah, you know, and at that point in time, they paid five points for leading a lap, you know, and and every point. So we we know we need to sit on the pole at Riverside. So we went out there and. God darn, Terry hit the wall coming off the last corner, qualifying. All up on the wall. Still sat on the pole. <laughs> Daryl standing there with a the watch said, he just barely beat me. Heck, I think we beat him a second in after dragging the wall all the way down. <laughs> and, then, and then we started to race in a rain delay, you know, green caution. Daryl got on to me and says, I'm going to run him hard. I said, you better not mess with him, son, because I'll get on your case. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it's just uh, – but it was – I think the I think when we got the white flag, we knew it was okay, you know. Yeah. Up until that last race, it, it was just not settled. Right. I just think it's so cool that here you have experience winning seven championships, and he has no experience in running for championships. How did you two work together that year? You know, I think he when we started the '83 season, I think he was still hurt a little bit. Yeah, I mean it, it hadn't been Riverside was what November probably. Yes, sir. It was. And then we go to Daytona, and we we just barely somehow we had a little trouble there, and finally got in a race. I, I forget where we finished, but we wasn't that good in '83. But to bring that up, and we didn't have a sponsor, and uh, we was talking around and. Uh, Budweiser was going to go in with Junior in 84. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to get their feet wet. So they scrambled around and come up with some money, which we had Budweiser car all year. And I got acquainted with them Budweiser people. You know, they'd show up in them five or six at a time in them high-dollar suits and all this other stuff and got acquainted with some of them. Then, of course, they went with Junior in 84, and we won the championship. So, I, you know, I, I laid on them a little bit there, you know what I mean? So yeah. we weren't good enough for you. But the 84 championship, the 84 season, Earnhardt and Childress said they were going to go with Wrangler and drop Piedmont. Yeah. Well, that really teed the Piedmont people off. So they signed yeah. with us just – Overnight, just about, so they could announce it before Earnhardt and Childress announced the Wrangler thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that was a big deal too. And they said, you know, it said the reason we're doing it just for our employees and what a great airline it was at the time, you know. And it says uh, we're signing we just so our people to have somebody to pull for, right. you know. And uh, we end up winning the championship. I'm not sure they know what to do with it at that time. You know what yeah. I mean? But we went to New York, and it, and it was it was a big deal. Winning the championship, what did that mean to you personally, given the fact that there wasn't a 43 on the doors? It stands out for me, certainly, yeah. to, to know that. And I think Richard was proud of me for doing it, yeah. you know. We talked to Terry a little while ago, and he said that during that season – he didn't get paid the entire last half of the year. Eighty three or eighty four. Eighty four. Okay. And and the hundred and fifty thousand dollars he got for being the champion, which sounds like peanuts now, but in eighty four that was yeah. a lot of money. Uh he gave it to Billy to keep the team running. Were you aware of any of this? No, not not really, because I you know, I know it was tight and, and you know, I, I no, I didn't know none of yeah. that. But I I knew I know you could depend on Terry. Uh 
to take good care of the car. And I don't know where it's 83 or 84, but we was at Daytona, the 4th of July, and was working on the car. And I said, Terry, we got to, we got to get it where we run wide open. I said, that, that's what me and Richard always worked on, running wide open, running wide open. So it come down, Lord, we was there at the end of the race, we just hauling buggy, you know, and had, had everything sewed up. Run out of gas coming to the white flag, and I said, Lord, our mercy is going to be mad at me. But we figured the gas, thought we was going to be okay, but he got up front there and running hard, and, and it used more gas. And I said, boy, he's going to be mad at me. First thing he said to me, he said, Dale was running wide open. <laughs> and he is proud of that, and I remember some of the things. But, no, you know, I wasn't aware of none of that stuff, and I didn't want to know it. But, uh, you know, later on the team got in trouble, and Wayne King bought into it, and I I don't know much of that history either. But then 85, we was going along there running decent, you know, and Richard wanted me to come back here in 86. Mm -hmm. And uh, with about five or six races ago, they offered me a big raise one day and fired me the next. (laughs) So it gave me a head start here so that to get back here and – 86 and keep some of the sponsorship i think i had to come back with him and not that we did that much but we kept everything alive well before 86 how long did you and richard talk about the idea of coming back he wanted me to come back in 85 and work with him at curb he just wanted me to, i don't know what he wanted or work he wanted you to come back here to level cross i don't know what he wanted okay. i know yeah. me and him okay. talk right. but yeah. i didn't feel that i could leave the 84 championship team yeah, because they had stood behind me so much, yeah. and I don't think it would have been fair to them, and that was my thought. Yeah. And he was getting his motors out of California, and they weren't very good motors at the time. How long did it take you to decide to come back? Was it something that you had to think about, or was it pretty much a done deal the first time? Well, you know, we never lost our friendship. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it just—I I don't even remember. But I do know during that same time, this is another story that uh, Walter. Hodgson, Warner, Warner, he, uh, Warner, he, uh, he approached me to come to Wilkesboro and be Neil Bonnet's crew chief. And I said, well, I ain't doing them drives no more. And, uh, he said, I'll send a helicopter for you. <laughs> and, uh, I said, no, I ain't going to do that either. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and this would have been in, Summer's long in that area, yeah. and but and then of course he went out of business too. Yeah. I guess yeah. you know he got yeah. in trouble because he was buying up racetracks and Junior Johnson. And I don't know how all that turned out, but he was he was and that I didn't make that up. He told me that you know, and but I kind of stayed where I was at. A helicopter. He was going to ferry you back and forth. That's what that and I ain't wow. making that. That's what he said at that point in time. You know now, yeah. of course, yeah. helicopters are kind of common. Yeah. yeah. And ain't, I ain't many people heard that one, you know what I mean? But I said, no, I believe I'll just pass on that, too. Had, I, the crew would have accepted that good when it me coming in in a helicopter every morning. <laughs> now, 85, Terry finishes second at Richmond in early September. And that night, you evidently get a call from Billy Hagan saying that he was going to let you go. How Something much? happened there. You know, I don't know. I don't know how all that happened, but I then made a deal with Richard. You know, but we yeah. did run second. Yeah, we we did run second my last race with them, didn't we? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he had offered you a raise to stay. Yeah. And let you go the next day. Strange. Huh. Strange. <laughs> well, it was. You know, I, I, it was more. You know, this Wayne King, and, and uh, I don't know, but it was okay because it gave me yeah. a head start here. Yeah. Because yeah. I didn't have nothing here at the time, and I was okay with it. After five years away, what was it like walking through the doors again here to go back to work? Uh, you know, I don't weigh on that. It, it, we, had, you know, they left the place in the shambles. I worked here by myself a lot, just cleaning the place up and getting ready. Yeah. And uh, probably where we made our worst mistake, and it's probably my fault more than because Richard brought it up. People that's I ordered cars from Hutch and Pagan, and they were rear steer cars. I should have went the front steer cars at that point in time because that's uh, I didn't catch up with the trend quite that quick and that was probably our downfall but then that two plus two Pontiac wasn't much of a race car either <laughs> yeah. I don't know we kept killing Richard and that thing but uh, I mean we tried hard you know and uh, hadn't been a whole lot of success for us from that point on far as numbers right yeah finishes and championships yeah. and stuff right. like that as far as your relationship with Richard, though, 
how long did it take you to fall back into what you'd known before? It it wasn't. I don't. I don't even know. I every time if I was working for somebody, I just put every, all my effort into it that I yeah. knew, and then. At that point in time, if the day before they couldn't drive a lick, if I was working for them, they're the best driver in the world. <laughs> so yeah. that's the way I looked at it. I think it was around 1998 when you pretty much became no longer a hands-on guy. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, they they brought Robbie in at the time, and and uh, he kindly kindly brought him in as crew chief. I don't think they've ever told me that he was a crew chief, but. I realized that, and maybe I was getting behind on my stuff and all that, and I was okay with that, but I could still – and and you get – well, Richard retired in 92, you yeah. know, and uh, in 98 I took a – I thought I was going to retire for a while. And uh, I'd come over here, and they'd be kind of – the workers would be kind of huddled up talking. They'd see me walk in, they'd spread like a grenade was getting ready to go off. <laughs> And I didn't have nothing to do with yeah. it. But during that time, too, I went over and volunteered to work for the Victor Junction camp a mm-hmm. couple of weeks and wound up two years working over there, driving bulldozers with Hugh Horthon and end dump trucks. And it was either muddy or so dusty you couldn't see. And I'd come home and Mary would make me strip off out in the garage. <laughs> a boy. And, and, and throw my clothes out, and I'd come in and take a shower that's how dirty you'd get but i loved every minute of that you know and and it's it's been a great great for the kids that gets to go there okay what is your opinion honestly of racing today uh you know i try not to grade it i i i try not to <laughs> and you know i get so controversy talks about it richard won races when when nobody on the lead lap with him yeah, but they didn't have the wave around. They didn't have the lucky dogs. And part of the strategy back in the day was if you got somebody a lap down, your strategy was to run and keep him a lap down. Keep him that a lap would, down, yeah. yeah. And that, that made it easier. And uh, if you was behind a lap, your strategy was to get back on the lead lap in case there was a caution to right. catch you all the way up. But, uh, but I hear so many people say, well, they don't watch it no more, and they – I'm not sure they understand it. I'm not sure I understand it. A, a funny thing happened at Dover last year with us. We was having a little trouble getting our car through inspection, and uh, I kind of talked to some of the inspectors, you know, a little bit. And So when we went through on Sunday, one of them said, uh, Dale was on us pretty heavy. He said to, to one of the crew boys, Dale was on us pretty heavy yesterday. And he said, yeah, just think if he didn't know the rules, what he could do, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. Yeah. But uh, – no, and and I made a statement to Doug Yates one time. They they'd come up with some rule, you know, and I said, "Listen, Doug, they're gonna have a race and they're gonna have a winner." So that's that's kind of where I'll rest my case on that. <laughs> For children with chronic medical conditions, Victory Junction means friends, fun, freedom. That's because we provide a medically safe environment where kids who live in a world of hospitals and doctor's visits can laugh, play, and discover all they can be, all at no cost to their families. Victory Junction inspires confidence, builds self-esteem, and changes the life of every camper who comes through our gates. Find out how you can change a child's life. Go to victoryjunction.org. Steve, since we started doing the research for this interview with Dell Emman, I have been intrigued by his championship run with Terry Labonte and Billy Hagan because Dell had a ton of experience in going for championships. He had won seven with Richard. And here he was in the middle of the 1984 championship battle working with a team who had zero right. experience going for a championship. Now, just four years before, when Terry won his first race at Darlington, Billy Hagan announces in the press box that within five years, his team is going to be a championship contender. Terry thought he was crazy, <laughs> but here they are racing for the championship in 1984. You brought out the key word in all of this, which is experience. As you mentioned, Dale had won seven championships. Terry and Billy, none. They were going for their first. Now, imagine the confidence and stability that Dale could bring to that team with his experience. 
Now, not only his technical expertise, that helped a lot, but he knew how to guide the team comfortably in a pressure situation. He'd been there before, many times before, and that was a bedrock to the team's achievement of his first championship. I think the thing that was working in Terry's favor, though, was the fact that he doesn't get up in the air about anything. So for him to go to the championship, of course it was a big deal, but he's not the type that's going to get spun out by pressure. At least no. he doesn't seem to be from the outside. No, he, he, he probably wasn't. Uh, I think Terry has always been known as a cool customer on the track. As a matter of fact, his nickname was Iceman. Everybody said that the Iceman nickname was given to him because he was a very cool and calm customer on the track. Now, in the media, <laughs> Iceman meant something else. <laughs> meant uh, Terry's uh, reticent behavior to answer questions. He was just a quiet guy. But combine the cool demeanor that he had on the track with Dale's steadying influence, that is a good, good combination to win a championship. Because if one or the other goes off track, say emotionally, it's not going to work. This one stayed on track. When we did the interview with Terry Labonte here at your house, you asked Terry about the fact that they were having some money trouble. And when we asked Dale about that, when we talked to him, he said that he knew that things were tight, but he didn't really seem to be bothered by it a whole lot. Is that just his personality? That's part of his personality, and it's part of Terry's personality to keep racing, even though he's not making the money. The goal here is to win a championship. And Dale and Terry and Billy all wanted that title. So concerns about money or anything else had to be pushed aside to reach the goal of a championship. That was what they were aiming for. They didn't want to be distracted in any way, especially Terry. And Steve, I can't help but wonder if the fact that they were able to race with those issues hanging over their head wasn't maybe due to Dale's experience and his reputation in the garage because people did trust him to make things right. You know, if there were some bills maybe outstanding, I'm thinking that maybe Dale went to them and said, hey, this is what we got going on. We'll make good on this. Just let us race. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me if he had, if he had done that. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Terry in some shape or form had done that. I will say that I think that many of the creditors that they may have had stood aside and let them race because of what they were trying to achieve, thinking that, okay, things might be all right once they win the championship. Besides, we want to be associated with a champion, so let's not get too much in the way of this effort. And as we mentioned, Dale had already won seven championships with Richard Petty. What do you think it meant to him to win a championship with somebody other than Richard Petty? Well, a lot. Let's cut to the chase, okay? I heard many times over the years that Richard Petty was only a winner because of the money and the technology and the factory support that he got. And I heard that Dale Inman would not be the crew chief he is today had he not been with Richard Petty and shared in that money and technology and factory support. That's absolute hogwash, as we all know. I don't care how much money you got. If you don't have talent, you're not going to win. And yeah. if you don't have if talent, you don't have talent, your hind end in that seat doesn't absolutely. mean anything. And it doesn't mean anything with the headset on on the pits either if you haven't got that talent. I think part of the reason that Dale was so satisfied to win a championship with Terry and Billy was simply that he proved to one and all that he was not riding Richard's coattails, not ever. And he'll tell you he never was. And I think it was very uh, fulfilling for Richard to see him win that championship as well for those very reasons. So I do believe that the proof of his talent and expertise and experience with Billy and Terry was very satisfying to Dale for that reason. (laughs) What did you think of Dale telling us the story about the job offer from Warner Hodgden to be Neil Bonnet's crew chief <laughs> and to yeah, be flown good. back and forth by helicopter. In, a, in a helicopter. Dale wanted no part of that. <laughs> I think that was an awesome illustration 
of his personality because you and I both know that there are certain people in the garage working on cars who more than likely would have jumped yeah. at that opportunity if for no other reason than the visual of being flown back and forth, ferried back and forth by a helicopter and looking like a big shot. Dale, when you get right down to it, Dale is just a good old country boy. And he has no interest in uh, being flamboyant. Never has. Even today, he's just an easygoing type of fella. So the idea of riding a helicopter back and forth to work didn't have any appeal to him whatsoever. And I think he said something to the effect of, what would the crew guys have thought of me flying back and forth in a helicopter? That right there tells you Yep. who Del Emin is. That right there also tells you he's not a man to put on airs. He doesn't no. need to impress anybody. No. Now, 1985, Richard Petty begins to make the decision to reopen the doors at Petty Enterprises. And I would assume that one of his very first phone calls was to Dale and to say, hey, we're opening back up. Would you be interested in coming on board? Of course he would. I mean, I'm thinking that, uh, that uh, Dale's eyes were headed back to a level cross because when you spend most of your professional life in a situation which is uh, very competitive and, let's face it, enjoyable, and with family, it's something you don't want to lose and have the opportunity to go back to it is tremendous. What do you think ultimately led Richard to reopen the doors? Uh, you know, there's a lot of us that have speculated over that. Well, even closing the doors in the first place. And I can tell you that myself, I never was able to get a straight answer as to what was going on. Now, I heard from Kyle, the son, who was with Betty Enterprises at the time, moved on. Heard a little bit from Richard, who moved over to Mike Curb. Uh, very little from Dale about the situation. So it's all, to, at least in my mind, it's all up in the air as to exactly what went on. I've, I've got to think that some differences centered around what was seemingly a dip in performance uh, is one of the reasons the team probably closed the doors for a while. Uh, and Richard moved on and won, and Dale moved on and won, and Kyle moved to better things at that time. But Richard reopened the doors back in 1985 because maybe he thought, I was never given a definite answer, okay? So I'm speculating. But I think that by the time Richard wanted to reopen Petty Enterprise, Whatever differences in the past had been smoothed over and it was time to get back together. Well, I think the fact that they were trying to run two teams, you know, with limited resources was obviously a strain. Yeah, I think it was a problem. They were running cars for Richard and for Kyle. Nothing against Kyle, but, you know, the funding just wasn't there. Yeah. And so that created a lot of pressure. When pressure is created... It tends to make things happen. Now, That's what I meant by a dip in performance. Yeah. And then when Kyle went and did his deal with the Wood Brothers, that opened the door for Richard, I think, to come back and operate a one-car deal just like he had always been used to. But when he offered Dale the opportunity to come back, word got out. They ran the race at Richmond. And that night, Dale Inman gets a call from Billy Hagen saying, yeah. Well, <laughs> you're out of here. Yeah, you're out of here. So, what do you think about firing Dell Inman? That just doesn't compute with Well, me. no, it doesn't be compute, but I got uh, news for you. Dale didn't give a twit <laughs> about it. No, I don't think he did because he certainly didn't seem too spun out. Not at all. As a matter of fact, I think his mental framework centered around the fact that Petty Enterprises is coming back and he was going to be associated with it once again. And this gave him the chance to go back to work at right. Petty Enterprises in Level Cross there at the shop that he knew so well. Yeah, I think that he wasn't spun out at all. I'm Rusty Wallace, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. September 14th, 1978 issue of Grand National Scene covered the fall race at Richmond. And <laughs> the rough shot at Richmond. You know, as we mentioned in the intro, I wanted to talk about DW and I also wanted to talk about Richmond. Those two just seemed to go hand in hand this week. So it was a natural fit. Six laps to go. DW popped Neil Bonnet 
in the rear bumper, ran him into the guardrail in turn one to take the lead. And <laughs> Neil was none too pleased about this at all. Not at all. And uh, he showed it in a very, very graphic way. Now, DW went on to win by second over Bobby Allison while Neil took third. Coming down pit road, Neil rammed into the back of Daryl's car. Yeah. And not only did that happen, but NASCAR official Dick Beatty had to kind of basically fall slash jump over the pit wall to avoid getting hit by Neil Bonnet. Now, if there's one person in that garage at that time that you didn't want to make mad, it was Dick Beatty. (laughs) (laughs) And Dick never moved so fast in all his life. (laughs) And Neil jumped out of his car and was headed toward Victory Lane when his crew stopped him. This was about to be really big, Steve. It could have gotten very, very ugly. And uh, Neil rightfully felt that he got slammed and turned into the guardrail deliberately. You know, nobody can really argue with him. But here's one thing to say about that. Guardrails are extremely dangerous. Yes. Richmond had a guardrail for years as other tracks before concrete walls came in to replace all that. If a guardrail splits on impact, essentially what you have is steel torpedo and right for the driver, you know, and serious damages. So that added to Neil's fury because of what dangerous situation a guardrail could be. In Gene Granger's race lead, (laughs) Neil Bonnet said, he put me into the wall. I regret running into his car, and I apologize to the fans for that, but I will not apologize to that <laughs> SOB. <laughs> well, I, like I said, uh, he felt, rightfully so, I'll add that again, that he had been mistreated on the track. Now, Neil hadn't been around very long, but he didn't no. have a, rep- he didn't have a no, reputation he did not. of being, the, being a guy who loses his temper. So this was totally out of character for him. DW said, I was driving to Victory Lane with one hand and unbuckling my safety belt harness with the other. I didn't see anyone coming up on me, so when I was hit, it scared the hell out of me. I didn't know who it was until (laughs) until I saw the fire in his eyes. (laughs) And fire in the eyes is all it takes to see to know you're in trouble. (laughs) Still, the story's not over. Yeah. Somebody in the crowd surrounded Victory Lane, threw a beer bottle in the direction of the car, and poor old Dick Beatty, <laughs> tough day, huh? again, got hit with some of the spray. Somebody throwing a beer bottle or a beer can at a racetrack? My heavens, who never heard of that? <laughs> As DW was interviewed over the PA, he, he was booed pretty loudly. And after the race, he said, if I had won the race by a lap or two, I still would have gotten the booze. He's right. <laughs> <laughs> there were some at the driver's introduction. I didn't like it. I don't like it, but it doesn't bother me. The booze didn't keep me from going to the press box. Exactly. That was the attitude Daryl had back then. He'd heard plenty of booze before this Richmond race, and he decided, they're not going to bother me because I'm here to do what I want to do, and that's to win races. After the race, Neil and DW both were placed on probation for 30 days. They said in the paper that DW's probation wasn't due just to Richmond. It had to do with a couple of races before, and and maybe Richmond was just the thing that kind of culminated everything but like you said bill gasaway who was the director of the winston cup series at the time he said i can't get over neil bonnet doing something like that i would expect almost anyone to do something like that but not neil bonnet but here's the key two parts i think number one uh the threat to dick Beatty was definitely a factor in the probation no question about it and second nascar doesn't mind Drivers getting chin to chin to settle their differences, not so much. (laughs) But don't use a car. Don't deliberately hit a car after a race is over. That has the potential to not only harm the driver of that car, but someone else, as was illustrated by Dick Beatty. And so Bill France Jr. had no problem putting these two guys on probation. And I think another thing that comes into play is the fact that you and I both know that NASCAR loves this kind of thing. They love without the, you know, the danger on pit road and running into a car and everything and, you know, knocking one of their officials over. You and I both know that they love controversy because it gets people talking. Yeah. I've seen on Facebook this sign that hangs at some short track somewhere and it says 
if you wind up fighting in the pits, you're going to get fined $500. It says if you get it in a fight on the front stretch in front of everybody, in front of the grandstands, we'll pay you $500. <laughs> I could not agree with you more. I think that NASCAR loves that type of controversy because it does get people talking. But as I said, it draws a line. When you use a car to settle your differences, that is where you're going to be in trouble. The other thing about this issue that absolutely leapt out to me is this. Buried on page eight of a 12-page newspaper is news that D.K. Ulrich has been fined $2,000 and suspended 12 weeks after <laughs> after a nitrous oxide bottle... <laughs> Laughing game. was found in his car falling a wreck in the Southern 500 at Darlington. Steve, this was buried on page eight. It wasn't even at the top of the page. It was underneath another story. It was basically a throw-in. He was caught with a nitrous oxide bottle. Well, Rick, the only thing I can tell you was I wasn't at the paper at the time. <laughs> but there's a, there's a pretty good story behind all of that. Uh, D.K. Ulrich was one of the independent drivers of the day. Independent meaning... Low sponsorship and no factory backing. But he was pretty good at it. Yeah. He and Richard Childers, Buddy Errington, James Hilton, they were the core of the independent drivers who could make a living doing it. Now, he got into that accident at Darlington with Grant Adcox. And David Pearson was involved, and so was Cuckoo Marlin. But it ripped the sheet metal off of DK's car, right from the front grill all the way down the right-hand side. And in there plainly for everybody to see, was the nitrous oxide bottle. Laughing gas. And what that does when injected into the carburetor, it gives the driver a sudden burst of speed. And I know what it did on the Dukes of Hazard. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of NASCAR's strongest rules about that nitrous oxide bottle. That was a definite major no-no. Right up there with an engine that was too big or right-hand tires on the left-hand side, they were the top no-nos and got the worst consequences. So DK and Grant were sent to the hospital after this accident. And DK was there for two days. And after he got out of the hospital, that's when he got the word that he was suspended for 12 weeks, which was the rest of the season. That pretty much put uh, DK's career in the graveyard because losing 12 races is a lot of lost income. Steve, the reason why I thought it was so crazy that this was buried is knowing what a similar infraction would cause today. Twitter would be broken. Oh, absolutely. Oh, this would break Twitter. Yeah. This would break social media, period. I can't even imagine the kind of furious uproar that this would cause today. Well... I agree with you. I think uh, based upon experiences in the past on social media where only the slightest infractions uh, bring us heavy response from the fans, this, as you said, would have been major stuff. Now, this isn't a quarter inch, maybe too high or too low or whatever. This isn't a, no, that's right. a fender flared out a little bit too much. This is a biggie. This is engine this is tires. This is nitrous. You don't mess with those no, at all. No. And Steve, not only has DK Aldrich been found to be guilty of this, it was the third time and the third time yeah. in 1978 that such a contraption had been found on a car. These names are not going to leap out with a lot of people. Didn't leap out with me. But Keith Davis, driving Harold Miller's car at Talladega, had been found with a nitrous bottle in his car. And Stuart Settler's in Bill Champion's car at Daytona in July. So this was a big thing for DK, but it had also been tried. So right. this wasn't a one-time deal, evidently. Right. This time, you're right. It wasn't a one-time deal. And I dare say that prior to this, there were several times that nitrous oxide had been used and NASCAR didn't catch it. But NASCAR figured out how it could be done, and therefore made the rule as strict as it could. Is there any way that a team today would try something like this? Absolutely not. Are Why? you kidding me? The technology of the inspection system is so great they couldn't get away. They're not getting away with anything, just about anything. We're talking lasers and electronics and all of this thing that does all of the inspection. Back then, it was all done by men. Human beings, the inspectors, and the gear they had to use it was uh, uh, not as sophisticated, nearly as sophisticated as it is today. So there were lots of times 
the teams got away with more than you can think of because of the way the inspection system was. If a team was found to have something like this on their car, what would the penalty be today? Probably unimaginable. It would be the death penalty. Absolutely. You know, and I don't know that NASCAR has a death penalty rule in their rule book, but yeah. Uh, oh, they can make it up as they go <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually it does. E-I-R-I, uh, except in rare instances. That is, <laughs> that is the hinge that operates the door. <laughs> Here's something that our listeners may not know. D.K. Ulrich was for a time married to Carolyn Rudd who is Ricky Rudd's sister, and he adopted her two sons. One of those sons is now a mainstay in Hollywood. He's been in several movies. Skeet Ulrich. Skeet Ulrich, that's him. And he is the adopted son of D.K. Ulrich. Oh, there's some trivia for you. All right, Steve. We're at the end of our episode, but I do have a very important announcement to make. We are at 53 written reviews Ah, of our podcast. It's payday for somebody. (laughs) (laughs) And just for a little background, for those of you who may not be familiar with this deal, it wasn't the first or second episode that I made this offer. You know, so this has been going on a while. Any Once we got to 50 written reviews on iTunes, I was going to offer a copy of each of my NASCAR-related books. And to be honest with you, the first time that I mentioned that on the podcast, I was like, you know, there's no way that we're ever going to do this. Ah, but Rick, there's never a sure thing. Never say never. So we are now at 53 written reviews on iTunes, and it is time to give away these books. Now, give me a drum roll, Steve. Buzzard Holler 21. His review, written on September the 20th, 2018, read, Great show. Love the interviews and stories. They are timeless. Keep it up. Short and sweet. Award-winning stuff. (laughs) Short and sweet. But Buzzard Holler, send me an email at scenevault at yahoo.com. Send me your address, and I will get your books out to you. Way to go, Buzz. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Steve, I kind of mentioned DW in the intro and loving his broadcast. So I want to send us out of this podcast with this. Oh, no. Boogity, boogity. Mr. Houston, will you please stop interrupting my class? (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Houston, what does boogity, boogity, boogity mean? (laughs) Tomatoes, <laughs> <laughs>